From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Progressive Spirit. ProgressiveSpirit.net, I'm John Schuck. You might want to put your headphones on so others won't know to what you are listening. We're going to talk about the Kama Sutra. Wendy Doniger of the University of Chicago is the author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra. Welcome, Professor Doniger, to Progressive Spirit. I'm glad to be here. Could you begin by giving us a 101, just a brief introduction to the Kama Sutra? What is it? What does Kama Sutra mean? It's historical setting. Who wrote it? Why? Sure. I'll do my best. So Kama is one of the three goals of a human life, according to ancient Indian wisdom. Uh, the first goal and most important is Dharma, which is religion and social justice and law. And the second goal, which is called Arta, is politics and money and success, the public world. And the third goal is karma, which means desire, pleasure, luxury, um, all the things that make life pleasant. And they're all three important, although karma is always ranked last. If there's a conflict between them, karma is third. So it's present, it's authorized, but it is ranked behind the other two. And there's a book about Dharma, a great book, several, and there is a book about Arta, and there's most important of all the ancient Indian Sanskrit texts about Kama, and the earliest is the Kama Sutra. So Kama means, as I said, pleasure, and Sutra, which is actually related to our word suture, means to thread together, and it's a book of ideas that are threaded together, pages that are threaded together, but also concepts that come one after the other in a kind of a scientific way. So the Kama Sutra is the book about pleasure, and it was probably composed in about the second century of the common era in Sanskrit, the, the literary language of ancient India. And after the Kama Sutra, there are other books about the erotic life, but none of them remotely like this one, which is unique in a number of ways. And you've written uh, a translation of the Kama Sutra, uh, and this latest book is, is an analysis of it, uh, and it's entitled Redeeming the Kama Sutra. So from what uh, does the Kama Sutra need redeeming? <laughs> from us. <laughs> um, <laughs> the Kama Sutra has been misunderstood for a long time. Um, it was not known in English at all in any European, until the late 19th century when a man named Richard Burton, no relation to um, Elizabeth Taylor's guy, <laughs> although they're similar types, sort of swashbuckling romantic types. So Sir Richard Burton, as he was, translated it into English, and it remained illegal in America and England until 1962. But pirated copies were smuggled in from Paris in brown paper wrappers. So that's the version of the Kama Sutra that everybody knows, and it's not an accurate translation. He got certain really important things wrong. So in the first place, no one has really been able to read the Kama Sutra in English until Sudhir Kakar and I did our new translation about 10 years ago. But even so, it's got a reputation for being only about one of the many things it's about, which is the sexual positions. Funny places to put your arms and legs and twist your body and so forth when you're having sex. And that is one part of one of the seven books of the Kama Sutra. So it's perhaps 3% of the Kama Sutra is about that. And all the rest is about other really very interesting things that most people don't think it's about. 
So yeah, I th- the, that's what it needs to be redeemed from. As you mentioned in your book, the, the common perception, if someone were to ask me before I read your book, Kama Sutra, I would think, well, yeah, it's a, an ancient book about erotic positions, as you've that's said. Right. Assume the positions, all sorts of jokes, assume the positions, right. the Kama Sutra of this, the Kama Sutra of that, and so forth. And that's, that is part of it. But there's, uh, that, so there are seven books. One book is about how to set up your house and how to furnish it in all sorts of ways, how to plan your day so that you're rested enough to make the most of the night. The, the second book is about the sexual act in all of its aspects, how to, how to kiss, how to embrace, and so forth, and indeed the positions. Then the third book is how to meet a young girl and keep her from being afraid of you. The fourth book is how, if you're married, it's a book for women, how to run the marriage. The fifth book is how to commit adultery. The sixth book is for courtesans, how to balance your desire for having pleasure with your customers with your desire to make money from them. Um, And the seventh book is about drugs and the use of drugs to enhance the the physical experience of sex. So it covers quite a range, including, indeed, uh, the positions. Well, I wonder, is the sense here, just to the positions, and we'll move on to other things, is uh, the author knowing this from experience? Is this somewhat of a a fantasy? How do we take the author (laughs) uh, in terms of uh, the writing style? The author, it's a good question. The author is trying to write an encyclopedia. That's the type, that's the genre of ancient Indian mm. text. The Shastra is everything you ever wanted to know about X or Y. So he's putting together things he read in other books about Kama, books which, by the way, we don't have. He says they were earlier texts, but they vanished. So he says he's learned things from other texts. He's also done a lot of field work. He tells you what people in the south of India do and what people in the west of India do and so forth. Um, he's talked to a lot of people. So he has a lot of data, a lot of range of personality types. He says some men are like this, some men are like that, and he's really very good. He really nails down certain types of people, the arrogant, the shy, and so forth. And then I think he is indeed fantasizing. So if he's going to figure out all the things you could possibly do, even if some of them are things you probably would not want to do, he puts it all in the book. And some of them, I think, are pure fantasy. Although he does say that in order to keep sex interesting, you have to have variety. And boy, he gives you some variety. <laughs> if you are just joining us on Progressive Spirit, my guest is Winnie Doniger. She is the author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra. And you write that the protagonist is a man about town, a wealthy mm-hmm. cosmopolitan male. Uh, it's kind of a how to get the girl and how to do it with with style. Uh, you make a comparison with Hugh Hefner. Is, is, uh, who is the yes. protagonist here? The protagonist of the book is called The Man About Town. That's what it really literally is. The word for town or city in Sanskrit is Nagara, and the hero of the Kama Sutra is the Nagaraka, the person in the city, really the city man, the urbanite, urban and urbane in that sense. So it starts off with him and his world, but it very quickly adds Women also can live this life as long as they have money. So you discover that the two requirements are not really city and gender, but city and money. That men and women who have the cash to live this kind of a life, it's a life of luxury, um, it's meant for both of them. He specifies at several points that women should read the Kama Sutra too. And indeed, several of the chapters, particularly chapter 4 for wives, is written for women, saying this is what you should do if a man has several wives. 
if you're the one that he's not sleeping with, how do you sort of maintain power in the household? And if you are the one that he is sleeping with, how do you treat the other wives so that they don't all hate you? It's about the psychology of a marriage in which there are several wives, and it's written for women. So a lot of it really is for women as well as for men, and obviously the things about how to actually engage in the sexual act is for both of them. So only part of it is sort of, oh, men, I'll tell you how to get women, although part of it is indeed about that. It's also women, I'll tell you how to get men. And so with that, you know, patriarchy is certainly the matrix of this text and all of them. When he talks about women, and I assume it's a he, the author, is, is there a sense in which... We know his name. That's all we know. We know him and his name. <laughs> yeah. Is the part that he writes about women liberating for women? Or is there an agency there? There really is. There are, there are real women's voices throughout the book. And by the way, when I said at the start that one of the reasons why the Kama Sutra has to be redeemed. It has to be redeemed from the Burton translation because he erased the women's voices. He paraphrased and took them out. There's a wonderful passage in which it says that if a woman is being uh, struck and injured, she'll cry out, stop, ouch, um, mother, let go. And Burton translates it to mean she will make an expression um, of desire for liberation. That's how he translates let go. So, I mean, give us a break here. He, he he simply takes the women out of it. But if you read the Kama Sutra in a more literal translation, such as the one that Sudhir Kakar and I produced, you'll see that women speak all the time. There's a wonderful section where he's telling the man, he's speaking to the man, um, if you want to commit adultery, you have to find a married woman who's likely to betray her marriage vows, which is just as serious in ancient India as it is any other place. And he says, this is the kind of woman that would be more likely than other women to commit adultery. And he lists the things that make women unhappy in a marriage, such as a woman who's married to a man who's not as intelligent or cultured as she is and embarrasses her all the time in public, or a man who is crude and who is physically rough with her, or a man who's out of town a lot, and so forth and so on. And he really obviously has been talking to women, and he gives you women's voices saying what it is that makes them so unhappy in a marriage that they'll consider breaking their vows. And it's a wonderful, compassionate passage about women, about what women put up with in bad marriages. So there's something about the Kama Sutra that uh, has a modern sensibility to it that's strange and different, and yet on the other hand, it becomes very familiar. That's right. So you go between the basic psychology, which I think really is the same as ours, the psychology of jealousy and bashfulness and embarrassment about your body and things like that. But then he throws in things which are culturally specific to ancient India. So he describes the day of the man about town. He gets up, he shaves, he uses mouthwash to keep from having bad breath. So, you know, we're with him there. And then he goes and and trains his minor bird to talk. And that is not something that most of us do in the course of an ordinary day. And all of a sudden you say, oops, here I am. I'm in ancient India. I'm, I'm not in Chicago or, as the case may be, California. So you go back and forth between these uh, moments of charming ancient Indian culture where you learn a little something about a very different world. And most of the text, I think, really operates in the world of normal, universal human experience of desire and rejection and fear of rejection and 
embarrassment when you're all when you're all messed up after making love he says you don't look at each other you leave the bedroom from two different doors and go to bathe in two different showers and then when you're all cleaned up then you meet again and sit down and start talking and drinking and eating little delicious things that he gives you so so that that's a moment that that i think is a is, a, is an eternal moment right the moment of embarrassment when you wake up and you're a wreck and of course part of this reading from modern eyes would would be to, um, I think I'll, I'll just quote what you write, were we to remain within the strict bounds of the historical situation, we could not notice the women's voices speaking against their moment in history, perhaps even against their author. So there's an aspect from our point of view to be able to read also against the grain, so to speak. We're looking for things that weren't that important to him, but are there. And another example is we are now very much interested in variations in gender and in not only transgender studies, but indeed just homosexuality in general. And um, ancient India was not at all um, supportive of anything other than really straight uh, heterosexuality. The Kama Sutra is the only text in this period that treats male, male homosexuals in a totally non-judgmental fashion that describes at some great length an amazing passage where a man who dresses as a man and makes his living as a masseur, massage parlors are the same apparently in all times and places, when a man comes to him and he starts giving him a massage, he gives him a normal massage, and then he'll touch him in a slightly more intimate place. And if the man says, what the hell are you doing? He stops and says, excuse me, sir, and it goes no farther. And if the man says, oh, do that again, things progress, and and the text describes how things progress. Well, that's a remarkably sophisticated portrait of the closet, of the way that men negotiate in a culture which is not supportive of of, of male-male sexuality. And there's just nothing like it anywhere in ancient Indian texts in ancient texts hardly anywhere, and you don't get it from the Burton translation because he calls the man, this masseur, he refers to him as a eunuch, which the text does not support in any way. There's no reason to believe this man is not physically whole. So no one reads that text as a text about a male homosexual encounter until you retranslate it correctly. He's someone of the third gender, And the third gender is the ancient Sanskrit way of saying a man who doesn't just have sex with women. And that third gender or third nature also applies to women as well, Uh, gender bending in that uh, regard, women who have sex with women or who exchange their, I guess, what what is it, uh, their kind of provided roles. That's right. The word, the actual term, the technical term third nature is really only applied to men who cross the barrier. Women who have sex with other women don't have a special term for them, but they're described in the book, the occasions on which women have sex with other women. The attitude of the Kama Sutra is that women, generally speaking, have sex with other women only when men are not available. They don't really celebrate it as an option of choice. But there are a number of occasions, most notoriously in the harem, where women are gathered together in large groups without any men, just one man, the king, who can't really take care of all of them all the time. And then he, then he describes what women do. But there is also a reference to a woman who loses her maidenhead to another girl when she's a girl. So there is, a, again, non-judgmental. Um, it's right there. Um, and it's simply not available in any other 
place in ancient India, and it's not where I'm, you, go, you go a thousand years before you get anything like this in India, long after the Persian and Arabic uh, infusions into Indian culture, which had different attitudes toward homoeroticism. So in the ancient world, this is really a unique text and an extremely sophisticated text. Wendy Doniger, my guest on Progressive Spirit uh, from the University of Chicago. She's the author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra. I want to talk about the politics of the text, the uh, history of it over the years. But before I get there, I want to talk also about uh, sexual ethics, perhaps. Uh, The Kama Sutra contains a chapter, uh, advice and instruction for the man about town on how to commit adultery. Is this a a protest against social convention? Is it meant to be taken as kind of entertainment, the modern romance novel or fantasy novel or... Or, or how, how do we understand that um, advice to commit adultery? It's a ve- that's a very good question. Um, Hinduism, uh, classical Hinduism in this period, is a very conservative religion, and it's very clear that the only reason to have sex is to have children. So it's all about fertility. Uh, when a woman is in her fertile season, a man must have sex with her. He's, do, he's not doing his duty as a husband if he doesn't impregnate her. And indeed, he must not have sex with her at any other time. So there's a real complete connection between fertility and sexuality. And there, is, there are very strict strictures against adultery. So that's in the Dharma text, that first, the, the, the basic classical religious text. When you read the religious literature that's growing up later on in India, the god Krishna, who is worshipped by millions of Hindus, commits adultery with um, Radha, his his, uh, girlfriend who's married to somebody else. And in South Indian religion as well, the image of the love of the god is that the worshipper imagines himself as a married woman um, in love with and having a physical affair with the god. So there's a, a metaphor of adultery in Indian religion, but it's not taken as a license to actually do it. So the Kama Sutra, in devoting a chapter to adultery, is extraordinarily, what would I say, anti-dharmic. It is extraordinarily bold in violating perhaps the most basic stricture of ancient Indian religion, which is the sanctity of marriage. So it's an extraordinary thing to do. It it comes from a world which is more about what people actually do and less about what people are supposed to do. Mm -hmm. Dharma is what people are supposed to do. The Arda Shastra and the Kama Sutra, the Kama Sutra in particular, say, let me tell you what really goes on in the world. And indeed, there is adultery. We know there is adultery because the Dharma texts have punishments for people who commit adultery. So they knew it happened, and the punishments are fairly severe. You will be astonished to hear they're more severe for the woman than for the man. Yeah. Um, but they are severe. So, so everybody knew that adultery occurred. Everyone knew that it should not occur, according to religious law. And the, and the Kama Sutra simply says, of course it does occur, and if you're going to do it, do it right. And that then at the very end of its long, long, multi-chapter description of various ways to commit adultery, it says, of course no one should commit adultery. I only wrote this chapter so that you could guard your own wife against adultery. <laughs> Which is just bull****. <laughs> it, it's, just, it's just sort of 
trying to get away with it, and apparently they did get away with it. It's sort of twisting everything around at the last minute to say, oh, no, no, I don't want you to commit adultery, whereas the whole thing is quite clearly how to commit adultery. <laughs> so how to do it and how to do it right. And But there's also a sense within the Kama Sutra that, that talks about... Um, Ethics. Uh, you write in the mythology of the Kama Sutra, which punctuates the entire text, uh, consists primarily of warnings against the abuse of power of sex. Mm-hmm. He's concerned of the ethics of sex. He's not concerned that much with the ethics of marriage. Within marriage, he talks about how to survive. That's chapter four. He tells the wife how to, what to do, how to, how to manage the servants, mm-hmm. all sorts of stuff. So, the, so he believes in marriage, too, and he tells you how to do marriage. If you're into marriage, he'll tell you how. If you're into, interested into adultery, then he'll tell you how to do that. So the ethics of sexuality is a concern for individuals and their, and their concern for their partners. He keeps stopping all over the place. He tells you some fairly rough positions and says, but don't do this unless it really suits you and your partner. Make sure that you've taken into account who she is and who you are and so forth. Not everything is for everybody. He keeps introducing right straight through the book warnings that you simply, he says, don't just do something because you read it in a book. That's one of my favorite sentences. Indeed, it's the only sentence that he (laughs) says twice. He says it at the end of the adultery chapter, and he says it at the end of the entire book. He says, don't just do something because you read it in a textbook. Take into consideration who you're in bed with and who you are and the time and the place. So that's his ethics. His ethics is concern for individuals and for partners. And of course, and if to the extent he's writing for men, concern for women. Wendy Doniger, my guest on uh, Progressive Spirit, author of Redeeming the Kama Sutra. Uh, about a couple of minutes left, but I want to talk about uh, another aspect of redeeming it. The Kama Sutra today in modern India and modern sexual politics and the tension between the erotic and the ascetic strains in Hinduism um, and, and there's the role of Kama in general. Can you talk a little bit about that? You ask very good questions. It's a pleasure to be on your show. Okay, well. From the very beginning of Indian culture, which goes back thousands of years before the Christian era, the common era, there have been two strains. There's been the basic Hinduism, which began in the Veda, 1500 BCE, before that maybe even, but certainly as early as that, and is present in India today. And that is the Hinduism I mentioned when I talked about fertility and getting married and having babies, the importance of having babies, which is the whole householder life, which is the whole center of Dharma, which is the household, normal life, having children, eating the right food, doing the right thing, being respectful to the priests, obeying the laws of the caste system. That whole world is the basis of Hinduism. However, There has been, from a very early period, probably the 6th century BCE, um, a philosophical tradition of renunciation, of giving up physical life, of going into the forest, of meditating, of fasting, of giving up sex, of giving up most food, of giving up meat, of giving up liquor, of giving up this and that, and of controlling the senses and being as cool as you can be and as detached from life as you can be in the hope that you will not be reborn 
whereas the other type of Hinduism, the basic type of Hinduism, hopes to be reborn, but to re- be reborn in a good way, in a good, in a good life. So the, the Dharma texts tell you that if you commit various sins and crimes, you will be reborn as somebody awful, like a snake or a, or a, or a blade of grass. Whereas if you behave yourself and obey the religious laws, you'll be reborn as someone healthy and high class and so forth. So, so there's these two different types of Hinduism. And when the British were in India, they really had great, they ruled India for hundreds of years, and they ruled it by sending only a few Englishmen to rule the country. So they used Hindus, Indians, Hindus and Muslims both, to do all the governing. So Thousands and thousands of people were part of the British world that governed the rest of India, and they took on British values. And British values were that that first kind of Hinduism with rituals and festivals to the gods was pagan and idolatrous and and awful, whereas philosophical Hinduism was respected and was honorable and decent. And that line from upper-class Hindus who worked with the British, who spoke English, and are still a small but very dominant class in India today, that group, that type of Hindu is deeply embarrassed by the Kama Sutra and Mm. by all the erotic and more widely sensuous aspects of, of Hinduism, the erotic carvings on the temples and the dancing girls and all of that. And they really predominate over the media in many ways, so there are lots of Hindus who go on just enjoying sex the way everybody does. But these are often um, very powerful. The present government of Narendra Modi favors this group very much. And so people get arrested for holding hands, for giving Valentines on Valentine's Day. That's against the law. Um, anything that participates in this more erotic or um, sensuous aspect of Hinduism is censored. And therefore, most Hindus, really since the British got there, most Hindus have been ashamed to admit that they have a copy of the Kama Sutra in their house, if in fact they do have one, they hide it away. Um, Very liberal people will show that they do in fact have a copy of the Kama Sutra. That's a way of showing that you're sort of emancipated from bourgeois morality and all of that. But for most Hindus, it's still a matter of embarrassment that there is this book because it participates in the British view of of Hindus as dark-skinned, oversexed, over-passionate and emotional but not very intelligent people, that whole view of, of savagery, which is the colonial image. And so it hangs over so that people are... Are, are embarrassed to say that they read and enjoy the Kama Sutra. Wendy Doniger has been my guest on uh, Progressive Spirit. Her book is called Redeeming the Kama Sutra, a fantastic conversation and a wonderful book. Thank you for it and for being with me today. I really did enjoy your questions. Thank you so much. Catch Progressive Spirit weekly on podcast at progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schock. Be well. Be well.